Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode, I speak with one of my podcasting idols, David Pizarro. Mr. Pizarro is a psychology professor at Cornell University and co-host of the popular podcast, Very Bad Wizards. I've been a listener of the Very Bad Wizards podcast for years, since I was a younger lad. So, while this was my first time actually conversing with Mr. Pizarro, his voice has existed in my life for quite some time. David co-hosts the Very Bad Wizards podcast with Tamler Summers, who is a philosophy professor at the University of Houston. And if you haven't listened to their podcast, you really should, because it's a lot better than this one. I don't know why you'd be listening to this one and not Very Bad Wizards. <laughs> it's uh, philosophically edgy, funny, all of the above. David and Tamler talk about human morality, psychology, they do exquisite film reviews, and much more. So I'll embed a link to the Very Bad Wizards podcast in the show notes here. In this episode, David and I talk a little bit about his podcast, but most of the discussion centers around the work that he has conducted in psychology. A lot of David's work has focused on emotion and moral judgment, and in particular the emotion of disgust. We explore some of this intellectual terrain in the conversation. In particular, we discuss the question of whether emotions ought to inform moral judgments, the relationship between reason and emotion, some of the work that David has done linking disgust sensitivity to political affiliation, and we also talk about some of the work that David has done on trustworthiness and how people use one's facial features and the moral judgments that they're disposed to remake as cues for trustworthiness. Spoiler alert, utilitarians are heartless bastards that ought not to be trusted. <laughs> in reality, it's a lot more complicated than that, as we discuss in the podcast. And finally, towards the end of the show, David and I talk about rap and the beats that he makes. I want to be a rapper when I grow up, and David is a beat maker, so that was a fun portion of the conversation. So, without further ado, I give you the extremely naughty wizard, Mr. David Pizarro. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. So yeah, again, this is weird for me. It feels like I'm talking to a long lost friend that I've never met. Um, but <laughs> That's the nice thing about podcasts. They're nice and intimate like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, before we get into some of the research that you've done, I was just wondering whether you could kind of lay out your intellectual history. How did you get into psychology? And then how did the podcast with Tamler originate? Sure. Yeah. Um, the you know, there's so many different ways you can tell the story about how, how you got into something. And uh, that's, it's, 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 part of it was just that I was interested in these topics, like, especially in morality and human morality and ethics and why people believe certain things are right and wrong and, and what is right and wrong and where do we get those concepts from. And that, but that could have led me to study any number of things, right? I could have gone to philosophy, sociology, yeah. even theology you know, I was raised very religious. It could, those all seemed like good options. I went into psychology in large part because the college that I went to, um, 
happened to have a good psychology department and I was a business major originally. I thought I wanted to go into marketing and advertising and I, I, I was so dumb to think this of myself <laughs> in retrospect, but uh, I decided to take some psychology classes because I thought, oh, it would be nice to have a psych minor um, if I go into marketing. Um, and right. I started taking those psych classes and I liked them so much that I started getting good grades in them. And I, before that I had gotten yeah. decent grades, but I wasn't a very good student. So, um, so I literally changed my major to psychology because it seemed like I was having so much fun that I was getting good grades in it. And I feel like really, I was like, well, I might as well get a good GPA. And and it just so it just so turns out that that we had a very good psych department. They encouraged us to do empirical research from from pretty early on. Where did and, you go uh, to undergrad? It's a college called Pacific Union College, and it is in Northern California in the Napa Valley. And it's affiliated with the Seventh Day Adventist Church, which is a, a Protestant Christian uh, mm. religion. And it's a very small liberal arts college, um, but but we had a very despite the size, like the psychology department was one of the best departments on campus. And I had professors that really encouraged us to do research and applied grad schools. And I just found myself at the end of college thinking, well, like if I can keep studying this, like that's pretty sweet. So I applied to grad schools and I was lucky, lucky enough to get in. Um, Has being an academic shaken the religion out of you or do you still? I think it was it pretty much shook the religion out of me. I don't know if it's because I was an academic or because of the things that I read that I might have read had I not been an academic. But right. over the years, especially in graduate school, like I saw that you didn't have to believe in these things. I was raised in a in a very strict um, sort of Christian environment. And, you know, you, you kind of it was it was in many ways sheltered and so i didn't see the the wide variety of perspectives that you could have on these things and when i got to grad school i think um like i realized oh wait i don't know i don't think i believe this stuff anywhere so how did you go from being an academic to a bona fide member of the intellectual dark web yeah (laughs) (laughs) i i don't think they would accept me i i think that uh they 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 got too Two SJW, maybe Tamler, my co-host, <laughs> my co-host on Very Bad Wizards. Maybe he, he, he might qualify. I, I think that I, I come across as too liberal. Certainly for his stepmom, she calls me a snowflake. Um, yeah, I've listened. To <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that that leads me to the second part of your question, which is how I got into to doing this podcast. So we've been doing this podcast for about seven years, and it really started because. Um, Tamler and I, my co-host, who's a philosopher at the University of Houston, um, we met each other when I was a postdoc and I went to a conference when he was in graduate school. And um, he he enjoyed a particular set of studies that I presented on um, where we manipulate the name of, of a person in the trolley dilemma um, to make him sound either stereotypically black American or white American. Mm. And uh, he thought it was uh, the right level of sort of fun and disrespectful. And we got to talking and we, you know, we got along. And through through the a few years after that, we would every once in a while meet at a conference and just have a beer. And he pitched the podcast idea to me and I thought it was whack. Like I thought it was corny. 
was like, stupid, I don't want to do a podcast. Um, but I'm glad he convinced me to do it because we started originally. I thought to myself, like at best I have six episodes to talk about. Like, like I can't imagine that my expertise or my interests go beyond like six episodes. Cause you yeah. know, it was like hour, hour and a half long. Um, and we just didn't stop. <laughs> we just kept going. I really yeah. just agreed to six episodes. That's all I was agreeing to. <laughs> <laughs> and podcasting itself as a plat, as just an art form has kind of taken off. You almost got in on the ground floor in some ways. It really has taken off. And especially in our little corner of the world, like um, it wasn't a big thing. I had been listening to podcasts for quite a few years, but they were almost exclusively like tech podcasts, like talking about mm-hmm. tech news. Like I'm a, I'm kind of a Apple computer geek. Yeah. And, um, and so I've been listening for a while. So, you know, part of what I I've loved about the podcast and you and I, Cody, were talking about this before we started recording. Part of what I, what I really enjoyed was the, the nerdy aspect of recording gear and, um, you know, getting the sound quality to be better. And, and I also make music for the podcast and it gave me an excuse to kind of nerd out in that way. And at first we were just losing ton. you know, I was losing so much money. Um, now I think I've already committed that mistake by the way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just brought all all this gear and I'm like, all right, the audio is going to be perfect now. It's going to be perfect. Like, and then, yeah. yeah. And then you're like, well, what the hell? What the hell do I talk about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just wanted uh, to feel like Amazon pages and suddenly I think I'm an expert. Yeah, yeah. No, it's and and, you know, I think you could probably tell over over time how our podcast got better in audio as we got better gear. And as I got yeah. better at at kind of doing quality control for the audio. Now it's right. just now it's just overkill. Yeah. So one more question on the podcast then we can dive into yeah. some of your work. Have you been. I mean, your podcast is pretty popular. Have you been the target of uh, PC culture, cancel culture? Because you and Tamler, you're academics within an institution, which is stereotypically overwhelmingly liberal. I found that to be the case, my personal circumstance. And you will, you know, you said that you're more in the SJW side of things, (laughs) but you guys will often criticize PC culture and, and kind of, I don't know what the right word, take apart different academic articles which you find to be kind of absurd like i think there's the conceptual penis one you know all that stuff have you do you come under fire from colleagues or or not no not really and i and i think that there are a few reasons for this that at first no one listened so no one cared um and then what happened is sort of over time and when i joke about being sjw like i think both my co-host and I are not, we're, we're probably not neither left nor like we're both liberals. Like there's no way to to categorize us as other than liberals, given the things that we believe, but we're definitely not like, you know, in, in particular, like I kind of just hate most politics and most political discourse. I find it to be just terrible. And most people seem most people I when I say most people I mean people on Twitter and stuff they they just seem to lose their mind about stuff and they you know I'm not it's not that I'm better than them it's just that I care less about politics so I don't lose my mind about that particular kind of thing um yeah so so we try to be about like you know I try really really hard to be reasonable about this stuff and 
it ends up being that sometimes some of our listeners who lean left will get, you know, will send us emails disagreeing with us. And sometimes some of our listeners who are right. I just got, I just got an email today actually from a listener who said, you know, David, you're reasonable about everything until it comes to talking about sexism and racism. And, uh, there you just seem to lose your, your rationality. Right. So person mm -hmm. from the left criticizing uh, for not being woke enough type thing. It was a person from the right, probably. Oh. You know, I don't know, but it was a person from the right telling me that like they agreed with most of what I say, except for when it comes to what they probably perceive as wokeness. Um, right. And so, but, but one thing I'll say is that our listeners, and we've said this on our show many times, our listeners are extraordinarily respectful. And even when they disagree with us, they aren't, they don't really troll us. They, they disagree with reasons. It's very rare. Occasionally on Twitter, you'll get like a drive by troll. But um, but Tamler and I were kind of kind of proud of this. I think that we've created a an environment of um, respectful disagreement with each other, and that that I think serves as a model for how people can disagree with us, where like Tamler and I can get into real real arguments about yeah. stuff, but it's all in the context of of being friends and trying to work out some of these issues. Um, and so, so no, you know, and now that my colleagues kind of do listen, I, you know, I don't know, some colleagues listen. Um, I, I think we've just been sort of lucky that perhaps our listeners, uh, the kind of people who listen to us, if they're offended by the things that we say, like the jokes that we make, you know, we, we make a lot of off color jokes and remarks. If they're offended, they'll probably just stop listening. You know, right. so so we're kind of there's a selection bias going on that the kind of person to listen to our show is not going to be too easily offended. I do worry every once in a while, like, you know, and we I joke appreciate the jokes. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, we joked once that imagine if they somebody took our. Our comments out of context. They could oh. be, sound really, really bad. And then somebody created a Twitter account called Very Bad Wizards. No contact. <laughs> Yeah, I think I've seen that. In which they um, actually do take us completely out of context. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> um, okay, well, yeah, let's. there's so much more we could get into there. But yeah. for time constraints, let's dive into some of your work. Um, I wanted to first talk about a lot of the work that you've done on moral disgust. Um, in particular, a paper that you wrote called Conservatives Are More Easily Disgusted Than Liberals is the first one I wanted to tackle. Uh -huh. um, so first, um, well, okay, let me just read this quote. So you say in the paper... Although disgust may have evolved in order to discourage us from ingesting noxious or dangerous substances, the emotion has come to play a much broader role in our social lives. Rather than arising solely as a reaction to noxious stimuli, disgust is also intimately involved in shaping moral perceptions of specific groups. Um, so it's this, my understanding, it's this capacity that's evolved via evolution by natural selection. So before we get into the actual article, the question that I had is, um, should we should discuss play a role in shaping moral judgments? Because it seems like a lot of times we want to outgrow these evolutionary adaptations. In particular, I'm thinking about tribalism, for example. It may have played an evolutionary function in the past, but nowadays in an increasingly cosmopolitan world, we want to outgrow this. Can the same thing be said of disgust as well? It's something that we should outgrow, or does it play a legitimate role in shaping moral or, or ought, ought it to, I guess. And I know that there are different perspectives on this, but so yeah, yeah. That, that, that's the question. Yeah. I, I have a, um, you know, an opinion about this that that's, 
it's basically like I, I don't think that just because something is evolved that we should ignore it or discard it. Right. So there are plenty of emotions that likely evolved. Right. Like whenever whenever we talk about these things evolving, it's it's some, you know, in some ways it's hand wavy because it's hard to get direct evidence for this. But I think that the the belief that emotions evolved to serve specific functions is one that many people believe, who, many people who study emotions believe. And I think that many of those emotions um, are perfectly adequate for for our moral judgments. So take something like anger. You know, anger is an emotion that often results in, in some ways, it is uh, defined by uh, some sort of judgment that somebody has wronged you, that somebody's worthy of blame. You, mm-hmm. you, that's input into what makes us angry. So I find out that you, Cody, stole $10 from my wallet or whatever. I get angry. Or I can right. get angry at the way that people are treated, right? right whatever. Um, I think that it, just because anger evolved it doesn't mean that we should get rid of those kinds of emotions because I think they're sensitive to the kinds of things that we already agree are morally important. So I, I think that being treated fairly is a morally important thing. And if anger is a response to that, then fine. If somebody commits a moral violation, I get angry, fine. Likewise with what we might call empathy or compassion, to the extent that it's an emotion, if I feel bad at somebody getting hurt or you know an innocent person getting hurt, that can feed into my moral judgment in a way that I think is appropriate because a lot of what my morality is about is protecting individuals, especially innocent individuals from getting unnecessarily hurt by others. Disgust is, I think, a different, it's a different beast in that to the extent that people believe that it evolved, and maybe not everybody, but I think most people who study disgust believe that the adaptation that it was, that it was, uh, like, it, it was adapting to a particular kind of evolutionary problem. And that problem was that of getting poisoned or eating bad shit that might make you sick or mm-hmm. touching things that might give you pathogens. And right. so the emotion of dis- disgust would have evolved as a rough solution to that. So like if I have disgust, I'm less likely to touch things that make me sick. Mm-hmm. That, it, that it plays a role now in moral judgment to the extent that that we know that it's about pathogens and avoiding disease, um, I think it's a misplaced emotion if it's serving as input into a moral judgment. So some things we get grossed out by, like sexual acts, we find yeah. them disgusting. And perhaps that's because of the evolutionary pressure of incest, or perhaps it's because of the evolutionary pressures of sex just being something that might might transmit diseases so we have to be careful about it mm-hmm. but to use it as input into a moral judgment to say that like it grosses me out therefore it's wrong i think is a mistake i think that if if you are disgusted by something that's not enough to say that it's wrong right um, and yeah, yeah that would be my intuition as well that's you know morality is tied to at uh, actually harming another individual, and there are many disgusting things that don't necessarily harm an individual. But it, it is, is it not the case that people do, in fact, even in the West, uh, include disgust in their moral judgments? I was reading some of the work by Jonathan Haidt, where right. he goes around, you know, asking people, uh, questioning people about these disgusting scenarios. So 
Uh, do you think there's anything morally wrong about me buying a dead chicken, having sex with it, and eating it? And then most people an- immediately have the response, yes, of course that's morally wrong. But then when height pries a little further, questioning them as to why they have that response, they can't really give a rational reason as to why it's morally wrong. They're just relying upon that kind of innate disgust reaction. Is that right? Right. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, and th- those particular examples do serve as as powerful examples for why, for how disgust might might energize a belief that something is morally wrong. But you know, I feel like um, in the height work, um, it's not made clear that there are plenty of things that we'd be disgusted by that aren't perceived as morally wrong. Like it might be disgusting um, for me to be talking to you on Skype and start picking my nose. Um, you I might get grossed out, but yeah, we're not, we're not on video I and mean, I'm not picking my nuts for the record. Cause I would never do something so filthy. Um, uh, you know, you might, you might think that it's rude, but you don't think it's morally wrong. Um, or what if you just found out that I picked my nose in private? Um, you know, or, or just even the thought of people going to the bathroom might be disgusting. Like it's not wrong. So there are many kind there are many times in which we feel disgust that we know have nothing to do with morality. Mm-hmm. And there are, uh, of course, many moral judgments that have nothing to do with disgust. So the question really is, and it's something that we've been trying to to investigate, is what's going on with that that little piece of the Venn diagram where people are very disgusted and they think it's wrong? Is it that the disgust is making them think that it's wrong? Mm-hmm. In, in the case of sexual acts, it might just be a misfiring of of like people's sort of puritanism about sex. So so uh, people have all kinds of views about what's right and wrong sexually. Some of them might include disgust and some not. But um, but I think that sex is one of the domains where disgust actually plays a large role. And it is one of the domains that society really has a lot of rules about. And I yeah. think that it's it's sort of just a quirk that that disgust is fueling um the attitudes right um and so you might get similar yoel imbar the psychologist yoel imbar who's been on our show and was my former student he's at university of toronto we've argued that um that really what's going on in these cases is that there are some things that people kind of believe are wrong already and if they happen to contain a disgust component to them, then it all that does is sort of energize the belief that it's morally wrong. If it's not morally wrong to begin with, then mm-hmm. nobody really cares. They're just, you know, I think it's gross, but who cares? Um, right. So, so I I feel like like disgust just as a quirk is playing a role in enforcing some of those moral norms. Yeah, so maybe this connects to a larger question that I wanted to flag hanging in the rafters, but just the relationship between reason and emotion in general. And people often talk as if these represent two distinct mental domains, but my understanding is that these are two sides of the same coin, and this is actually borne out phenomenologically. If I'm reasoning and I have a sound argument, it feels like something to... uh, to understand that train of logic. And I'm thinking in particular, again, to Height and his kind of wag the dog illusion where reason is the tail that wags the dog of value judgment. And we, we, we think that uh, 
So I guess, do you agree? I guess the question would be, do you agree with Haidt on that, that reasoning is often post hoc and that it is these emotions that are doing much of the work? Yeah, I, I think that that there is one sense in which I agree in which that I think reason is often used in a post hoc fashion where I disagree. And this is one of the first papers I ever published was with Paul Bloom um, as a critique of John Haidt's emotional dog and its rational tale paper, where yeah. we argued <clears throat> that Haidt was underestimating the power of reason. And so along the lines of what you were saying, it's very hard to come up with a good distinction between reason and emotion or cognition and emotion um, because the two are so interrelated. So a lot of the emotions we feel, it's because we've made some sort of judgment about the world around us. I was talking about anger before. If I, or take jealousy, if I find out that my partner, if I find a phone number in my partner's pocket, yeah, I, I might get jealous because I think, oh, perhaps they're talking to somebody else, right? Um, mm. But if I find out that it was just the number of whatever, you know, so like a dishwasher repair person, then I don't, right? like I stop being jealous. That's because whatever basic cognition that I've made, the basic judgment influences what I'm gonna feel. Like a lot of feelings, especially social emotions, um, like embarrassment, jealousy, and envy, and and anger, and shame, those are all a result of you believing something. And that's why things like cognitive behavioral therapy work, because they're trying to get at the cognitions that are causing you to feel bad. So they're intertwined. It's just hard to talk about them as in that intertwined fashion. So we'll, so we'll say, well, you think something and then you feel it. Um, then you feel an emotion. Right. Um, but but they're, they're very linked. And I, I think that uh, another feature that, Height was missing in this discussion of reason and emotion was that just because something is emotional doesn't mean that it was caused by emotions. So right. one example that I give to my students is, you know, suppose that you, Cody, have you decided that you want to figure out where you stood on abortion. And so <laughs> you did you you read everything that you could, both medically and to in terms of ethics and philosophy. And you studied hard and you you read arguments for and against the the morality or the immorality of abortion. And um, nobody and nobody can say that you are what you are not what you're doing isn't reasoning. And so you decide, I think abortion is immoral. Right. Not not that you believe that, but for the example, um, I, don't, I don't know what I believe. on. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, you're a philosopher. Of course, yeah. you don't know. Um <laughs> And and uh, so from then on, you've decided and from then on, it makes you very angry when you hear about somebody having an abortion or about abortion clinics and you get very upset. You get angry and you you protest and you yell. Um, and now I bring you into the lab and I I talk to you about abortion and it turns out you get really mad and you tell me abortion is wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, a psychologist could conclude that, well, clearly your emotion has overwhelmed uh, your reasoning because you are so emotional about something that that must be driving your judgment. But why would you have to reason every single time you were presented with this issue? We pro you probably reasoned about it once mm. um, and decided what you believed. And from then on, it's probably a good thing that your emotions guide it, right? This is This is... This is just how how these things work, right? Like once I decide that something is wrong, it can upset me when somebody does it. Um, right. 
And so, so we thought the heights analysis was missing these very, these, at least these two ways in which reason plays a role, both in, in the judgments that you make that lead to emotions and in the fact that somebody might reason something out at time one and then forever after be emotional about it, um, even though the reason causes them to have that opinion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And on that first point, the judgments that you make to that lead to emotions, just kind of f- reflecting upon my own phenom- phenomenology and realizing that has functioned to alleviate so much mental suffering, I, I think, if I understand you. Just I'm anxious. A lot of times that feeling of anxiety is driven into existence by a thought that I'm having. And once I actually yeah. drop the thought, the anxiety will dissipate almost within seconds. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, it's a strategy for emotion regulation. It can be hard to do, but it's it's just an effective strategy for emotion regulation to to um, analyze the thoughts that are giving rise to those emotions. Right. Right. Um, and and so it feels kind of crazy. Even when John Haidt wrote that paper in 2000, um, it felt kind of crazy given the amount of emotion research that had been done on things like emotion regulation. Um that that somebody would argue so strongly that emotions were were that reason was completely post hoc and it it wasn't having a, a causal influence uh, on emotion. Now that said, to be fair to John Haidt, his claim yeah. was one about the frequency with which this happened. Right? It's not that he said that reason never works. He would grant that reason worked sometimes. He just seemed to be arguing that it was a lot less than we think that it does. And I think that he's right that that it's probably less causally reason is less causally powerful than many of us think it is in our own lives. Um, mm. But that's, but I think that it was still ignoring a large swath of times when, when reasoning plays an important role. You know, another example that Paul Bloom always gave was there are things that we just don't have emotions or intuitions about that we make ethical judgments about. Like what is the appropriate amount to tax somebody right now, tax, you know, that's a complicated question. I don't really know. I suppose that I could have some real basic intuition about fairness, but it would have to, I'd have to think quite a bit about, about what fairness means in this context. And, and that thinking is, has to be done if you're going to arrive at any position about taxation. Um, there's no, because there's no evolved emotion or intuition or, you know, your parents don't raise you to think that, that, uh, <laughs> like tax, there, there should be a flat tax rate. And that's, that's the morally right thing to do. We, I have no intuitions about it. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you say that. Cause that actually reminds me of a, a different article that you wrote called human intuitions will stifle technological progress. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was interesting how you just note how, um, and I think one example that you give there is self-driving cars. Yeah. Right? Where, uh, if we have com- ubiquitous autonomous self-driving cars and the data shows that it's saving a bunch of lives, we still might not want to uh, buy into the self-driving cars because we find it fundamentally or intuitively creepy that these cars are able to track our precise location. So it, just how uh, another example that came to mind on that front would be um, manufactured meat or something like that, right? Maybe right. we can stop killing animals and we can actually manufacture meat in a lab, but there's this creepy intuition that prevents us from taking that technological leap. I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's right. So I think that that happens. You know, one of my favorite examples, it's not, <laughs> it's not quite this point, but it's close to it where, where people seem to be resistant to technology. So um, this is, 
there's an actual true story about BMW cars. So Mm. BMW got so good at isolating the cabin from external noise that, um, that the, you could no longer hear the rumble of the engine when you were inside the cabin and, uh, passengers, the people who were driving BMWs hated this. They want, they wanted to hear the responsiveness of the, the engine, you know, they're like, why the fuck did I buy a BMW? If not, Sorry, can do you want cursing in your show? Like, oh yeah, yeah, please. Oh, okay. <laughs> I prefer, I prefer um, it. <laughs> good. Uh, you know, like, why the fuck would I buy a BMW with this awesome engine if I can't hear the roar of the engine when I hit the accelerator? Right. So what BMW ended up doing was they got audio engineers to mimic engine sounds and pipe it through the stereo system. So <laughs> what you're hearing in high-end BMWs when you hit the accelerator button, I mean, the acceler- button, the accelerator pedal, that rumble is actually a sophisticated algorithm meant to generate fake engine noise that you can hear through your stereo. It, isn't that <laughs> ridiculous? So yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I don't have a BMW, so. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, neither do I. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, and well, yeah, and I, I feel like the flip side can be true as well. Just as intuitions can stifle technological progress, it seems like some technological uh, progress might play upon our, our intuitions. And one of my biggest fears, I'm really into the philosophy of AI, one of my biggest fears there is um, we'll create machines that are able to pass the Turing test with flying colors, but they won't be conscious, but they'll convince us that they are conscious because they behave as if they're conscious and they talk as if they're <laughs> right. conscious. So you know, now you have machines kind of uh, mindless machines psychologically duping us in a way. So like like the fear is that they'll be philosophical zombies. Like Yeah. Yeah. It, just, it seems more plausible to me that we will create machines that pass the Turing test before we solve the hard problem of consciousness, I guess. Yeah. You know, the, um, have you watched the show The Good Place? No. Okay, well, um, it's a good show. Um, but there is a particularly interesting scene um, where there is an artificial intelligence that mm-hmm. that is able to provide any of the people in this show with perfect information. She she is a humanoid um, artificial intelligence. And there's a point in the show where they have to reboot her. They have to reset her, it, basically uh, erasing her memory. And uh, she says, yeah, all you have to do is go up to this physical location and press this button. But I warn you, I'm programmed to protest you erasing my memory, even though I think that's the right thing to do. And I'm all for it. When you get up to that button, I'm going to protest. You have to ignore my protests. And so they get up to the button and she's like, no, 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 please. I changed my mind, please. Oh, God, don't hit that button. And so they, <laughs> they stop. And she's like, why did you stop? And they're like, well, you were said. She's like, no, 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 ignore these protests. Right. So it's like. If you can, in a similar vein, there was a headline that came across my Twitter feed the other day about um, robots programmed to say no, Uh, sex robots that are programmed to say no. (laughs) (laughs) They need to give you their consent first. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, is that wrong if if the robot is protesting? Um, It's certainly, you know, you could certainly mount an argument that it's not very morally good to have sex with a sex robot who is asking you to stop. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Right. 
uh, independent of the question of whether it's okay to have sex with a sex with a sex robot. robot. So guess, like, like, let's assume that it's okay to have sex with a consenting uh, robot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, circling back now to the conservative study. Um, yeah. So your your article, conservatives are more easily disgusted than liberals. So you do two studies here. Uh, the first suggesting that uh, conservatives are more predisposed to feel disgust than liberals, and the second specifically honing in on the moral dimension of purity. So could you just kind of summarize the two studies and the conclusions that you found there? Yeah, sure. So so um, the way that we study disgust, in this case, disgust sensitivity. So the, the article is pointing to individual differences in how prone you are to feeling disgust. And so the way that we measure that is um, there are a variety of ways, but the most common way is to give people a questionnaire that says things like, Cody, imagine that you were uh, walking through a railroad tunnel and you smelled urine. On a scale of zero to four, zero being not at all disgusted to four being extremely disgusted, how disgusted would you be? So how how would you answer that? Uh, say like two, maybe. Okay, right. So, I'm not easily rattled. Yeah. Another one is you you pick up a soda and drink it and you realize that it was a stranger's soda, not yours. How disgusted would you be? Hmm. Uh. Well, I guess it depends upon the stranger. I mean, <laughs> are, we about, are we talking about like a high, probably not that much. I'd say like a one and a half. Okay, right. So now some people are like, would say give fours. I've talked to some people and they're like, oh my God, how is the answer anything other than four on both of those? Um, and some people are like, well, I don't get why you would even care, right? And yeah. so when you look at those individual differences, which we did, um, and to be honest, at first, we weren't at all interested in political orientation. Um, in fact, my disdain for politics made it such that I didn't even include political orientation questions until a colleague of mine, actually my postdoc advisor, Peter Ditto um, at UC Irvine said, could you just do me a solid and include like a political orientation measure? Mm. And so we included these measures when we were surveying people on, on disgust sensitivity. And what I kept finding was that People who were liberal were less likely to report disgust sensitivity. So the, their overall score was lower on these questionnaires, the average score. And people who were politically conservative reported greater disgust sensitivity. And I ignored that for a few studies yeah. because I didn't have an interest in, in it. And uh, when I got to Cornell, Yoel Imbar was a graduate student here. And he said, well, come on, you got to pursue this. So we did a series of studies trying to, to sort of nail down this general finding right like we wanted to make sure that it was actually a finding and sure enough we got it so so just straight up like one to seven uh, political orientation seven means you're very conservative one means you're very liberal four is you know moderate or whatever um people are more likely to report discuss sensitivity if they're more conservative and uh you know, just as a preview, we have found this now. A number of studies, other people studying it all over the world have found the same basic finding. Um, there is, it's not a quirk of US politics. It seems to be something about being more left or more right. Probably something about uh, how threatening you perceive um, things to be, like especially things that might cause disease. Um, yeah, that, that pattern is everywhere. So 
in that second study in that paper, what we wanted to find out was what aspect of conservatism or liberalism was being picked up here. What what exactly was it? Because could it really be something like fiscal conservatism? Like, why would that have any relationship to disgust? And sure enough, when you ask specific issues, it turns out that disgust sensitivity is most correlated with things like attitudes toward homosexuality. In some cases, we find attitudes toward abortion, just sexual behavior in general, right? Like right. having multiple partners, that that sort of thing. And then in many follow-up studies after this, what what researchers have found, this is from us and from other people, is that it seems, in fact, we recently published a paper with like dozens of authors from all over the world. Um, it seems as if disgust sensitivity is is picking up on this traditionalism aspect to being right of center, which is, you know, be wary of new things. Be wary of, of practices that, that might be threatening. Um, so does that, uh, does that traditionalism aspect have a linkage to religious affiliation? Because that was one of my natural yeah. thoughts in reading this study, that the link between disgust sensitivity and conservatism can be cashed out in terms of religious affiliation, mainly because religious affili- you know, religion tends to emphasize purity, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like I would think that that's the case, but but that's not a very uh, reliable finding uh, for us. It's never been. So even when you're statistically controlled, when we measure religious orientation, there is a relationship um, between conservatism and and uh, religious religious orientation. But even when we're taking that into account, the relationship between disgust and political orientation seems to stand. Um, so so I think that what's what's happening is that even if you are conservative and not religious, um, you are more more prone to to having this particular kind of of emotional reaction to to threatening things. Okay. So let me see if I can articulate this next question without being canceled. And I, I don't I don't want to veer too <laughs> I, I don't want I don't want to veer too far into <laughs> hashtag, hashtag cancel Cody. Hashtag cancel Cody. <laughs> I don't want to veer too far into politics. Right? I want to yeah. focus on research, but I couldn't help myself because um so I read this and I'm like, okay, maybe conservatives are more emotionally sensitive along the lines of disgust, but there is this stereotype floating around in my head that at least some form of contemporary liberals are are perceived to be more emotionally sensitive than conservatives, or or they let their emotions drive their political judgments uh, more so than conservatives. And I guess I'm talking about the kind of woke scold identitarian types. I don't not not all liberals, but and that, that is just kind of like a general stereotype that a lot of people have, right? Like liberals, yeah, um, they're more emotionally sensitive, and they let that that um, their emotions dictate their politics, and they perceive conservatives as heartless. But then conservatives will perceive them as just being way too idealistic with no foot in reality and just right. following their innate sense of good goodness to detrimental practical consequences. Um, so I guess, do you like do you agree with that? And is that possibly a phenomenon? And could it possibly be true that liberals are are more emotionally sensitive by and large, even though they're not more emotionally sensitive when it comes to disgust in particular? Right. Right. I think that that, um, well, for one, I mean, what you're pointing to is, uh, you know, there's a reason liberals are often called bleeding hearts. 
right? They seem to to report like all this sympathy and and compassion for for people who are not even in their in their group. And yes. um, we have found we've certainly found that liberals self-report more empathy for just other other people. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's this part to be navigated, which is that when whenever I talk about this work on disgust and political orientation, um, it's easy to sound like what I'm explaining is why people are conservative. And and this is something in my field that shows a very liberal bent. Like they, they assume that, well, a, ra- a reasonable person, even though people don't say this explicitly, but they'll assume that a reasonable person would have liberal views. And so why are people conservative? And so they look for explanations for why. <laughs> and so they'll read something like my paper and say, ah, OK, it's because they have more disgust. But the reality is that um, you could just as easily describe our finding as liberals who don't have dis- like people who don't have disgust are more liberal. And so we actually titled a paper once dirty liberals because <laughs> it's not at all obvious how much disgust you should have. Right? right. Nowhere in our in our research can you determine how much disgust you should have. And there are plenty of people who I personally as somebody who's high in disgust sensitivity who I think <laughs> should have a little more disgust than they do. Right there, because they're, you know, like take your average college sophomore boy, like they're just gross. Like they need to be and girls, actually, I think this is a stereotype. But like there's a, you know, my I have a daughter who's almost 15 years old and her room is just gross. Like I yeah. wish she had more disgust. Um, right. So so it's unclear what the right answer of how much how much emotion in particular disgust you should have. Um, so it doesn't. I really want to protect against any interpretation that says that conservatives are wronger to have uh, more wrong to have disgust and liberals are more right to have um, to have less disgust. By the same token, I don't know what the right amount of compassion or empathy for outgroup members should be. And but I but I do think that liberals are people who are more likely to report feeling empathy for, say, the poor and for criminals. I think that what you're referring to about, say, like woke culture and this culture of sensitivity to insult and offense, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what's going on there. I part I think part of it is that what we're getting, you know, and this might get to we could what we could talk about about the the influence of social media. Um, okay. I think the part of it is that the people who are most volatile in their emotional reactions are the ones who are most likely to make a fuss on social media. I think that, and there might be evidence for this, but I think that your average conservative and your average liberal liberal is far more reasonable than the average conservative and then the average conservative and average liberal that is reported in the media or that, that takes to Twitter to talk about stuff. So, so I, I think we're having a distorted image and, you know, there's some research to indicate that this distorted image is causing further polarization between the two groups because, you know, like I'll give you an example. I just watched the Joker movie. Oh, and, I want to uh, see it. It's fucking great. It is great. Ah, it's a great so movie. And I'm a comic book nerd. Like, I love this shit. I eat it up. Yeah. But but there are like there were already a ton of reviews, in particular one in the, the New Yorker, which was. Yeah, it, it was the biggest it was almost like an onion article about 
SJWs talking about about this stuff. Like it was reading all this stuff in into the movie about like race and politics when like honestly it was a fucking movie about a comic book character and well, we, and a yeah. comic book character who is a terrible terrible human being right <laughs> and, and i mean the, yeah. i know you talked about this on the podcast but the dave Chappelle thing too really mm-hmm. just kind of highlights that distinction between how the average american feels about it and how the twitterati journalist reviewer elites whatever how they yeah. feel about it you know yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's right. And so so there is this very reactive culture. I think that it's it's fairly distributed across conservative and liberal. I think that Tamler and I often complain about the liberals um yeah. knee jerk reactions because because we're fairly liberal and that ends up being the people we're exposed to more. I, I feel like if we if we were in a different walk of life in a different circumstances um, with our career and whatever the people we were around, um, we, we might be exasperated with our conservative friends more than, but you know, now we're just exasperated sometimes with our liberal friends. Um, so I think that that part of politics that's kind of out of control is different than some basic, basic features of the people who tend to be more conservative, more liberal. So we know for instance, that, uh, personality characteristics seem to to uh, be correlated with uh conservatism or or liberalism so people who are more um open to experiences to novel experiences tend to be more liberal and people who are higher in the trait called conscientiousness which means sort of being neat and organized and and you know uh just being on top of things mm-hmm. those tend to be more conservative i think that this other stuff that's going on with social media is just somehow an inflaming, escalating dumpster fire. (laughs) Yeah. And that's honestly, that's what you just said is how I perceive it too. I perceive the loudest voices on both extremes are the ones that are dominating this platform. Journalists and politicians thinking that these voices represent the American people. And then they're making, they're developing their talking points and making policy decisions based upon what the Twitterati are saying. Whereas the majority of people don't even use Twitter. So now I feel like it's right. just an example of social, the insanity of social media seeping out into into real life. And um, that's, that's yeah. right. That's one of these cases where we're getting a distorted. This is a case where normally social information is very relevant. Like if you lived in a small scale society and, and you had 60 people telling you that something was terrible, like there's good reason to think that it's terrible. But when you right. live in a in a world with seven billion people and um, sixty people are telling you that something's terrible, uh, those could be batshit insane people, and you would get a really skewed view of what most people think. Um, but we're not good at representing how many, like you said, most people are not on Twitter, and like yeah. to many people on Twitter, that blows their mind, right? Like you know, they they have they think that Twitter is a representative sample of opinions. And so they, they will, you know, and our, our president uses Twitter as a platform to in incite, you know, he's, he's great at, at trolling liberals. Right. And this is, <laughs> this is a, you know, if there's, if the, I, I will like, I, you know, my politics aside, like I, if I'm going to give Trump credit for anything, it's being a, a master troll. Um, Undoubtedly. Yeah. And just to 
full disclosure, my like so I my uh, family voted for Trump, but I'm more liberal, so I kind of feel like I have a foot in both worlds in a weird way. Yeah. Um, but just since you br- brought up the social media thing, I was watching one of your te- uh, TED talks about uh, trustworthiness, and and you talk about how um, this token economic game, right, where yeah. where you're where you're assessing facial cues and how people use facial cues to discern whether someone is trustworthy or not. It's a game in which you're essentially asked to, to whether or not you trust somebody else, but, but it's behavioral. So the way that it, that it happens is say, Cody, you and I come into a room and we're told that we're going to be in an experiment together. You and I are strangers, complete strangers. And, uh, we get to talk for five or 10 minutes. Um, and we're explained that we're going to explain to us that we're going to play a game. And the game is as follows. You have four tokens. So I, I give you, say, poker chips, four poker chips. And I have four poker chips. And those four tokens represent a dollar each, four dollars each. So you and I have four dollars in our hand. If I give you a poker chip, it doubles. It becomes two dollars. And so... Um, so I am placed in this position where I can say, well, look, we could make some money here, Cody. If I give you all four of my tokens, you get $8. And if you give me all four of your tokens, I get $8. So we Sounds both, good. Let me just get the tokens first. Yeah. Yeah. We, so we both win there or right. you could say, yeah, David sounds great. Let's do that. And so then we secretly both cast our, our tokens and it turns out that you tricked me into giving all my tokens and you kept all yours. So now you have $12 and I have zero. So this is taken to be sort of a microcosm of, of a social exchange that requires trust. So how many tokens will you give me? Uh, It's taken that more tokens means you trust me more and fewer tokens means you trust me uh, less. And, um, what you're pointing to is this experiment that we ran where we had people chat face to face versus uh, uh, during, like on a text based chat on the web. Mm. Um, both both groups seem to give the same amount. Now, I think that's just because, you know, these are low stakes. You've come into this lab. You're playing with another person who's participating from your university. Um, you're kind of a dick to not give any tokens. Um, but you might be suspicious. So you give two, like the average token giving was two. Um, what we found was that the difference between web-based and, and video chat was that, um, it was easier to predict. If I asked you, how many tokens do you think David's going to give you? And you asked me, how many tokens do you think Cody's going to give you? You're more accurate when you're face to face. Mm. So, so that because accuracy, you're reading the facial cues because you're reading the facial nonverbal bodily cues. Um, and so, so that's, that's where the, the accuracy comes in. I think that in general though, people are like, well, I might as well give two. That's like right about the right amount of risk. Um, yeah. um, but to the extent that there's variability, I think, especially when people are going to give you zero, you might be able to suss that out. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah, again, my initial response was, wait, hold on a second. Social media is completely deranging our trust in social yeah, epistemology. Yeah. But I see what you're saying. Just since we're on that subject re- uh, yeah. real quick, so then you also go on to note in that TED Talk that, and then also in a paper that I read, that not only do we use facial cues to discern trustworthiness, but we also use moral judgments. 
deontological respondents are perceived to be more moral and trustworthy than utilitarians. Um, so could you just briefly talk about that first, I guess, yeah. what is utilitarianism in a few words and what is the experiment here and the results? Yeah. So broadly stated, there, there are a, a few really big theories of ethics. If you're asking the question, how do I determine whether an act is right or wrong, right? Any given action, I want to know, is it right or wrong to do this? And you, uh, there are two big, big theories that seem to conflict with each other, at least in, in some cases. One says that, um, well, you have, there are a list of constraints that you can't do. So like you can't, hurt an innocent person, right? You can't, you can't murder, cheat, steal, lie. These are wrong things. Like, um, you should, you know, you can think of it as sort of 10 commandments, how those, how those commandments are arrived at is, is kind of a separate question, but, but, uh, deontology is this view that there are constraints on what you're allowed to do. Utilitarianism or consequentialism more broadly is the theory that says what is right or wrong is solely a result of whether or not it maximizes good things in the world. So right. how do I determine whether an action is good? Well, does it bring about good consequences? And so there are these classic, you know, many of your listeners might be familiar with the trolley, trolley scenarios where you pit these two theories against each other in examples that are designed to separate these two uh, theories. So are you allowed to throw an innocent person to their death in order to save five other innocent people? For the deontologist who believes that there are certain constraints upon action, so like you are not allowed to kill an innocent person, this seems very wrong. For the utilitarian or the consequentialist, it's just a matter of, well, what action might maximize the good in the world? And five people living is better than one people when only one person living. And so they would say, presumably, throw the five. Now, one of the problems with being a consequentialist is that it leads you, in many cases, to have a very counterintuitive response to these moral judgments. Most people, when you ask them, think that it's wrong to throw some innocent person to their death to save five people. As a right. utilitarian, you bite the bullet and you would say, well, like that sucks, but it's, I'm, you know, I'm not going to change my moral theory just because it's uncomfortable in this case. Um, right. What, what we were building on was this sort of view that, that you know, deontology that that view that there are certain things that you just can't do is built on a whole set of moral intuitions that most of us have which is that like you probably shouldn't throw someone to their death and that's what's driving our resistance to it and you can imagine like i'll tell this this you know there's a there's a uh, an economist named robert frank who's here at cornell in the business school and um i remember one time i was talking to him about utilitarianism. And he said, no, I'm a utilitarian. And I said, do you really believe that, Bob? I said, do you really believe that, that, uh, you should throw an innocent person to their death in order to save five people? He says, yeah, that's the right thing to do, but I wouldn't want that person on my team. And what he was, <laughs> what he was pointing to is that one reason probably that we are freaked out at the thought of somebody being utilitarian is, you know, imagine that your, your best friend that you're walking around with, is making calculations about what will maximize the good. They, things like loyalty or being partial to, to me, like, you know, right. I might be the person that he throws down just because he did the math. Like, we don't like that in people. Like, we, we, we want people to, be, we want our friends to be loyal. We want them to have some sort of uh, uh, 
it's essentially like, why, why would you be my friend if you wouldn't favor me over a complete stranger, even five complete strangers? You don't so, want to be the person thrown off the bridge. Exactly. You're exactly. not going to trust you the person. And I don't want my friend who sees that I left a hundred dollars lying around. I don't want my friend to be the sort of person who would calculate uh, the risk of stealing my money to save, you know, starving African kids and then takes the money and says, well, it's a moral thing to do. Um, right. Not that a utilitarian would do that, but it's very easy to see why doing calculations might be seen as less than human. That's what computers do. That's not what humans should do. You should have, you should have a set of emotions, social emotions that prevent you from doing those things to your friends. And sure enough in this paper with, uh, Mo this is with, uh, Molly Crockett and Jim Everett. Um, we found that people are in fact more likely to trust by playing a version of the game that I just described. Um, they're more likely to trust people if they've seen that that person made a deontological judgment on a, on a, just, you, you see their responses on a previous question. If right. you, if you, if, if I found out that you, Cody had said, yeah, throw the fat guy, um, to save the five people to stop. The I don't train. care. Do it. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> if, if I, if I found that out, I would, I, I just give you fewer coins. Um, and I expect that you'll give me back fewer coins. Now there's a, there's a caveat here that if you, if you tell people that the decision was very hard, that is, if you say like, this really sucks, it was a hard decision to come to. I don't like that I would do this, but I think that it's the right thing to do to throw the fat man, um, mm -hmm. sacrifice him. Then that effect goes away. So it, right. it seems as if we're just gleaning information about what kind of a person you are from these responses. We, we just want to know, are you, are you the kind of person who would, who wouldn't fuck me over? Right. right. So it's, it's not as if we distrust utilitarians per se. Right. Um, we, we do trust reflective utilitarians. Exactly. A we want, we want yeah. them to be making like a decision based on, you know, like compassion. Right. And I think that that's, you know, many utilitarians do say, no, look, what I care about is I deeply care about the suffering of everybody in the world. So I want to maximize the good by, right. Yeah. And you mentioned the computer point, how they just, uh, they are, computers just calculate costs and benefits when making moral decisions. And that kind of ties into that Guardian article that you wrote called, why are we reluctant to trust robots? And essentially that's the point that you make. We're reluctant yeah. to trust robots because robots are utilitarians, right? They don't have empathy. That's and, right. Yeah. I thought that was plausible. Um, okay. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm running out of time, but can we talk hip hop a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk hip hop. How did you get into making beats and who are some of your favorite rappers? Um, you know, I got into making beats. So I've been a hip hop fan ever since I was kind of allowed to listen to my own music. <laughs> so my dad, again, was raised fairly strict, strictly religious uh, environment and um, things like popular radio and rock and roll were it's not that it's not that I was punished for listening to them. It was just frowned upon. My dad raised me on a diet of classical music. Um, but he is a music lover. He, he really appreciates music. And I think I got at least that. But as soon as I was able to start listening to music on my own, just hip hop music, this is now in the mid 80s as a as a kid in Southern California. Um, that was just like, just fascinating me. And since that yeah. time, I, I was just that that's my music of choice. Um, but 
I never thought that I would be like a, a maker of, of music. Like I, I, although you, I have, your beats are dope, by the way, I really, <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, uh, it wasn't until I, right before I started doing the podcast, I had gotten an iPad and I realized that with an iPad I could like, there was really cool. Like in garage band, you could like just fucking around. Like I could, I could try to make beats. And, um, in fact, one of the earliest things I ever did was make the very bad wizards theme, but I made it originally as a beat. Um, and then when we started doing the podcast, I added in like all the little wizard of Oz samples. Um, <laughs> but, uh, then the podcast gave me an excuse to keep doing this. Um, so yeah. we use it as the interstitial music. And right. so, so now like, you know, fast forward seven years later and again, spending needless, needlessly spending money on on uh <laughs> on equipment to make beats when really like all you need is is an ipad um <laughs> uh, i've just come to love it um it's just it scratches a creative itch i think not everybody's like this but at least i am in in a, in a way like be, doing academics is using what you might colloquially say is your your left brain right all that you're just thinking about things it's right. it's easy to even though you have to be creative in some sense, it's hard to to have a creative outlet um, when when all you're doing is like editing your students' papers or whatever. Um, and so so I love that. But uh, but to answer the other question about who my favorite hip hop artists are, you know, I was I was grew up in Southern California, and Tupac is probably up there. Like I was actually legit depressed when he died. <laughs> I was a huge Tupac fan. Uh, but be but before that, I loved, you know, I just growing up, Run DMC was my first cassette. Um, but I loved, I'd say my first love, true love of a hip hop group was Tribe Called Quest. To this day, I really love those guys. De La Soul, um, some of that, what we might, what nowadays would be, considered conscious rap or something <laughs> um yeah. before rap was all about like you know fuck bitches and kill and <laughs> n-words like it, it was like lighter hearted and it was you know and in in many cases afrocentric like right around that period where where rappers were wearing african medallions and dashikis um i was really into that i was <laughs> yeah and it's it's the conscious rap that i really like in the contemporary rap scene like i, I like kendrick lamar a lot i like j yeah. cole I, i'm not as big of a fan of the mumble rap I guess yeah no i'm i'm with you i'm with you and kendrick lamar is just lyrically just amazing i'd say Nas is is up there as one of my favorite of all times i think illmatic the album is is if i had to rank rap albums i think that would be my number one um, yeah. Do you sell your beats to rappers? Oh, you know, I don't. To the extent that anybody will rap over them, there's one song that a rap artist uh, rapped over that's that's on my SoundCloud. I do, I don't. I would give beats for free to anybody who wanted them. And but aside from that one rapper who recorded, uh, so that now I can legit say I'm a producer. Um, most people <laughs> who have used my beats are just people fucking around and like flowing over my beats uh for fun and uh i would never care to make money off of off of it like if somebody wanted my beats i at some point i've thought maybe i should try maybe people would value them more if i put a price tag on them. <laughs> um yeah. but but it's it's to me it's like you know i i'm so lucky to have the job that i have which provides me with a stable income 
And then on top of that, the podcast, which provides me with additional income that, that to me, like I would just be greedy to start charging. <laughs> I mean, I, I would definitely be interested in using some, I'm at the yeah, point yeah. where I'm at the point where, uh, I'm just trying to make music and I know that beat making is its own art. So I'm just trying yeah. to either buy a beat or find, find a producer that I can work with where I can actually just focus well, on the app and start making if you want to record like i'll send you the um the uh compilations that i've put together um of just the beats and if if any of them strikes you as something you'd want to record over then you can you can record over them or if you want me to make them longer because they're usually you know one minute long beats um so if you want to flow over any of them like let me know that would be a dream i just hope that my bars do the beats justice. Oh, you know, that's what, that's, that's, that's on you. You gotta, we gotta, <laughs> who, who is you, who would you say that, that you try to emulate to the extent or like you're influenced by those guys like Kendrick and, and J. Cole? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely more lyrical stuff. One criticism I've gotten is that, you know, I'm trying to sound like, like, Hey, you got really good bars, man, but you, you're trying to sound like Kendrick a little too much. Or I, I yeah. see a lot of, I see a lot of M, uh, right. just try to be you more. And a lot of times, it's unconscious and I don't even realize that I am kind of replicating their rhythm or their flow without even realizing it. So, yeah. um, yeah, I, I'm just not like an angry person. So I think I'm more of a, kind of a lighter yeah. uh, flower than angry yeah. Eminem. And well, yeah, Eminem, you know, when he was early, that kind of anger that he had was kind of fun. And now oh, he's yeah. just angry about being famous, which I find a lot more boring. Um, <laughs> what success does to you yeah that's right uh but you know finding your voice and your sound that's actually that's tough like i i i think that throughout most of your like the beginnings of any artistic endeavor you kind of have to master the art and that can often just it can be good to, to emulate the way that other artists do it you know one of my favorite producers of all time jay dilla um, mm. the way that he would practice was by, you know, like he would take this Pete Rock and CL smooth. Pete Rock was one of his favorite producers. I think his favorite, it was his favorite producer. And he, uh, just went through this one album, Mecca and the soul brother, and tried to replicate every single beat using the samples, the original samples that Pete Rock had used, uh, mimicking the drums. And that was practice that was just him practicing right you you know refining his art by by taking what somebody and i've found actually that that it's a great good challenge to say try to make this beat i know the samples i you know i can get drums that sound kind of like that try to make the beat just like another producer made the beat you learn a lot right just try trying to mimic different styles that's right exemplifies your diversity on it yeah yeah well hey thanks again um Again, I love your podcast and I appreciate you responding and taking the time to do this. It means a lot. Yeah, thanks, Cody. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.